0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and
1: new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid. Conversations about connecting and communicating. In that class,
2: four of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. And one who didn't was Tony Fauci. He was another colleague. We all knew each other then. And you know, when I look back on it, who would have ever dreamed of such a thing? So the question is, what how did that
0: happen?
1: That's Nobel Prize winner Robert Lefkowitz. He won the Nobel Prize for figuring out how receptors on the surface of our cells can be targeted by drugs, but he got his start as a researcher as a member of an extraordinary group of young physicians who worked at the National Institutes of Health as a means of fulfilling their draft obligations during the Vietnam War. This conversation is an edited version of a long talk I had with Bob and some of his colleagues for an Audible.com podcast called Soldiers of Science. In a moment, we'll get to how the work of that group of researchers helped save millions of lives. But first, here's a typical Bob Lefkowitz anecdote that not only speaks to his approach to science, but also his love of a good story.
2: I remember the date, October 10th, 2012, I was at a press conference because I had received word that morning, uh, that I had won the Nobel Prize. And, uh, one of the questioners said, I see you're a native New Yorker, uh, did you root for the Yankees? I said, are you kidding? I lived for the Yankees. And he said, can you remember the batting order? And I remember, I started right off, you know, Phil Rizzuto.
1: This is amazing. You win the Nobel Prize, and the question you have to answer is, who batted first? Exactly right.
2: <laughs> Isn't that something? Nobody cared about what I had done. <laughs> but, but, I, but but I did remember, you know, the batting. I, also, the uniform
1: numbers. When I heard this, that you could do this, yeah, I wondered if this was a mark of a good scientist, <laughs> to be able to remember a lot of things and then later put things together that don't normally go together. I think that
2: that's a very astute observation. I think that a big part of making discoveries is putting together disparate things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just remembering little bits and pieces and then all of a sudden, serendipitously, because serendipity is another big part of science, uh, another piece of the puzzle falls mm-hmm. onto your lap and you say, wait a minute, you know. 11 years ago, I saw this, that, and the other thing, and if this goes with that. So I think you're absolutely right. The, the ability to put together disparate things, uh, is an important part of the, the creative scientific process.
1: And they have to sort of be available in your head. Exactly. Because they're not linked. It's, they don't necessarily come up in an associative way, right? You gotta, you gotta somehow have that creative urge that brings them up when they're not usually linked.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you know a lot about creativity because you're very good at humor. And humor, I often point out to my fellows that there's some really interesting common links between humor and the process of discovery.
1: Tell me about that. I think that's really fascinating.
2: So, the essence, most people who know me consider me fairly funny. Not because I tell jokes, because I don't. I just tell stories. And... uh, So the essence of humor is putting together two things which you might not necessarily, in fact, they they seem to jar, uh, they, they're, uh, they just don't go together. And then in a moment in the punchline, you connect those two things and there's a flash of recognition. Okay. And every time you get a joke, you're making a little discovery yourself. Uh, You're, You're putting those two things together and saying, aha, I hadn't thought of it that way. And in a flash, there's humor there. And, you know, so there's a little discovery, if you will, every time
1: you get a joke. The story of the soldiers of science began during the Vietnam War when all young male physicians were automatically drafted. In a highly competitive selection process, a handful were chosen to serve in the United States Public Health Service, caring for patients and doing research at the National Institutes of Health. At the age of 23, recently graduated from medical school, Bob Lefkowitz was one of them. I asked him for his personal feelings about the war.
2: I was very much against it. Uh, I had you know marched in demonstrations and this and that and so that was one of the major reasons that I didn't want anything to do with it and this seemed like a honorable uh, way to fulfill my obligation to to the country to serve for two years uh, so yeah that was the main impetus to it
1: did you face any prejudice about not going overseas and and facing the the, the battles that other people were facing?
2: Not overtly. Uh, and again, I think that's just because most of the people that I seem to wind up associating with were sort of from my peer group. But there was a pejorative name for those of us who were serving at the NIH in the public health service, which you may have heard called yellow berets. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that term. Yeah, I
1: have. Uh, I, I wondered where it- Began. Do you have any idea about the origin of that?
2: No. And I looked into this on more than one occasion. It just seemed to sort of well up. Uh, and of course the uh the reference was to Green Berets, right. who were these heroic uh commando uh, elite forces, uh and then yellow berets, yellow for uh for cowardice. Mm-hmm. Uh so but the interesting thing is we referred to ourselves as yellow berets. Uh,
1: sort of took it on as a, as a
2: joke. Yeah. As it, a joke-like badge of honor. Perfectly stated. Exactly right. And to this day, uh, you know, one of the things about that program that's so remarkable is that virtually my entire generation of medical academicians came out of that program. Uh, I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, and there have been studies of this. I mean, at one point, something like 30 percent of the Harvard Medical School faculty had been yellow berets. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about some of my very best friends to this day, of course, most of us are either retired or semi-retired or on our last legs, as they say, <laughs> <laughs> hanging on by our teeth. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we refer to ourselves as yellow berets.
1: Some, not all. I mean, some people really don't like it.
2: That is exactly right. I, I'm thinking of one, one friend, a uh, very prominent, uh, yellow beret, uh, and also a Nobel laureate. I won't mention his name, who bridles at the use of the
1: term. I, he's a friend of mine. I know who you're talking okay. about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> what did you start out doing at the NIH? Well,
2: I started out working on a project. I was fortunate in that I had two mentors. Uh, one named Jesse Roth and one named Ira Paston, both in their mid-80s, both still alive, quite active. Uh, and, uh, it was fascinating. They had worked very closely together for a number of years. Uh, I thought they were very senior scientists. They were probably in their mid-late 30s. Uh, but they seemed very old to me. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. Uh, and, one of the interests that they had was in uh, something called hormone receptors, uh, which at the time were sort of a kind of an imaginary idea that uh, cells would have on their surface molecules that would specifically recognize hormones or drugs like adrenaline or histamine or serotonin uh, but
1: so, so this was just a
2: surmise a surmise exactly, mm-hmm. and, and many didn't believe in it. Uh, and those who did had kind of a very foggy conception of it that, well, they don't nearly need to exist, it's just some way of trying to understand things. Uh, and so their idea uh, was that if you could somehow label these receptors with, say, a radioactively labeled hormone or a radioactively labeled drug, uh, that you might be able to study them. Uh, and for some complicated reasons that were mostly just practicality, they selected a uh, particular hormone called ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone,
1: uh, which stimulates know, the adrenal. What, what, what kind of hormone? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> adrenocorticotropic hormone. They call oh, it, I, why didn't you say it, so? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> ACTH to you. That's what they call it. That's what they call it. My job was to see if I could find a receptor for ACTH.
1: But you now this interests me. Yeah. Talking about the the life of a scientist, yeah. There were people who said, "This is just a surmise. Right. Why waste your time? There's no evidence. What makes you think receptors even exist? Yes, right, exactly. And you are betting your career. Correct. Uh, so how did you? How, what? How did you weigh that? What What were the factors that made you say this is a good bet? Wonderful question. Uh, so initially, of course, I
2: didn't worry about it. You know, the boss said, do this, so, you know, you're going to do this. But then it failed over and over and over again. Nothing worked. Uh, so
1: well, what what failed? What was your hypothesis? Just
2: that, that they existed and that I could, fi- I could get my radioactively labeled hormone to stick to something that would look like a receptor. Uh, and I couldn't make it
1: work. So did those failures help you learn something? Uh, in the long run, yes. In the long run... Like, don't do that anymore. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what they mainly learnt, taught me over the course of the first 18 months was how to fail. And that was the most uh, important lesson for me because I had never failed at anything, not in any significant oh, wow, way. Oh, interesting. I was always top of my class, whether it was in school or medical school. I was always... Stood out. Even in areas where I had no natural ability, like sports, I could, by dint of hard work, you know, become the fastest runner, the best batter. And in
1: study, in academia, if you're learning stuff that's already known, it's possible if you're really sharp and work hard not to fail. But if you're looking for something that's not known yet, you don't don't even know if it exists you're bound to fail
2: right, and it's a bet, and it's like any bet that you make, you don't know there are certain odds. Uh, you don't only hear, you don't even know the odds. Uh, but what convinced me, uh, and again, it, in the end, it's sort of like you know people become a champion for an idea. I was convinced from all sorts of indirect data, this had to be true. Okay, and I, I can't necessarily even explain why. I mean, it just—you know—we could go through each of the scientific lines of evidence. There was so much specificity in drug action. You—you uh, uh, you could take a drug like adrenaline. Uh, you can make a tiny little modification in it, and it doesn't work anymore. Uh, or another tiny modification, it works even better. And things like that convinced me there had to be some something on the cell that it was fitting into, like a key fitting into a lock. And it's got to be just right, uh, and so I was absolutely convinced. And even though I continued to fail, uh, I I kept the faith. But it was—I'm not saying I, I was uh, a model in that regard. I I got probably clinically depressed at that, during that time. Really? Yeah. From the persistent failure yes I had never dealt with failure before clinically depressed that's horrible yeah now that's my diagnosis uh, okay, okay. <laughs> you I, were in a
1: clinic and you were depressed, depressed. exactly
2: <laughs> exactly right exactly <laughs> right you got it
1: I mean I know so how did you get out of that was there was there an aha moment where you said I don't need to be depressed anymore I discovered the secret of the universe yes
2: w- when the experiments started working that, that uh. but there was an interesting thing that sort of deepened the whole thing. And I would say the deepest trough I was ever in emotionally in my life occurred uh, toward the 18-month mark uh, at the NIH. So I had been failing repeatedly. Uh, and then uh, my father died, uh, and suddenly. And that was an amazing blow. I'll never forget it. Three weeks before he died, which was in mid-December, I went home for Thanksgiving uh, with my family. And uh I was really, as I say, depressed. I mean, be too dramatic. So, old? so at this point, I am like twenty-four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go home. I am an only child. I was very close to my dad. Uh, the thing about my relationship with my father was that he he had a lot of common sense, and so whenever I had a problem of any kind, I would discuss it with him. And he, somehow, we talk it through. We come to. So, I got home, and we had this wonderful conversation where I told him how unhappy I was that I was a total failure at research, and uh, yeah, I was just miserable. And he listened, and he said, what are you so upset about? He said, you always wanted to be a practicing physician and a cardiologist. He says, "This is you're fulfilling your military obligation. You're almost done. And what's the big deal? You'll go back to your clinical training. You'll become the doctor you always wanted to be. Who cares? And, you know, it made a lot of sense. And it was like everything lifted. Went back. After that, that was the last time I spoke to him, uh, and I got a call. I was in clinic at the NIH uh, three weeks later uh, with my buddy Harold Balmas, uh who uh, was a medical school classmate and a bench mate in the lab. We'd been house officers together, and I got a call saying he had dropped dead. Uh, Balmas drove me home, and we got in the car, and we drove to New York for the funeral. The reason I bring up the story was it was only a month or so after that that my research started to work uh but of course I was still mourning my father but over the next few years as I tried to figure out what to do with myself uh, and as I found myself being drawn more and more deeply into research uh that conversation the last conversation my father played on my mind because we like I felt at a certain level we had almost worked out a plan. And the plan was to go back to clinical medicine, fulfill the dream that I had had and which I guess he had had for me. Uh, and now, as I got drawn deeper and deeper into research and more and more was realizing, you know, I wasn't going to spend my life tending to patients for the most part. It was almost like I was betraying this deal that I made with my dad. Uh, it took me about five or six years to work through all that, but I did.
1: But as you got... Better and better at showing that there were receptors and that they could be used for drug delivery, for instance. You must have realized that this was something that would make your father really happy.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the thing that has often been on my mind that on the day he died, where my career had come to was tremendous academic success as a student and an abject failure trying to do research. And that's where it was when he died. And when I think what happened over the years after that, my God, uh, my father uh, actually wrote a letter to his brother, his younger brother who lived in California. And in it, he said, today, Bobby graduated from medical school. It is the proudest and happiest day of my life. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, If graduating from medical school was the proudest day of his life, what the hell would he thought uh, about what happened after that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting that you were concerned about disappointing him. Absolutely. And yet the work you did, once you had, did did you have an enormous breakthrough or was it gradual?
2: It was a series of breakthroughs, a series of breakthroughs, each one building. There were a lot of aha moments uh, and they, they just kept coming over a number
1: of years. And eventually, all the drugs that we take to get better from various illnesses of, 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 the, of all the drugs, all the medications we take, what percentage do you think involve the class of receptors that you've figured out? They
2: say it's about a third. Uh, of all FDA-approved drugs. How
1: can your father not be happy I mean, I'm just going to
2: say, and, you know, I look back on it, uh, most of them were not invented when he passed away. What a difference it would have made in his life. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have the same coronary artery disease that that I got from him. Uh, But here I am at 76, uh, this quadruple bypass. uh, I take – I probably take two or three medicines that – work on the receptors that we studied. None of them were available when
1: he was uh, alive. There's a bittersweet uh, thing about that. Probably with every new advance, you know that the next generation will benefit from it. So something I don't get is why did the NIH feel it was important to bring physicians in to learn to do research? Why didn't they bring in researchers who were already partly there? What's the advantage of combining a clinical physician with a research project? Again, uh, it's a wonderful question. Uh,
2: I think that the reasons they were doing it were probably very practical, uh, but I think it turned out to have much more... Uh, of a widespread influence than they could have ever imagined. I think they were doing it because it was a, a ready source of uh first of all, they needed physicians to to take care of the uh the patients at the clinical center. So they you know uh so they needed to have some core of physicians. Plus there was this ready uh source of, of talent, you know, that were going to be drafted one way or another, so why not get some of them? Uh, but I don't think they were necessarily aware of the importance of the physician scientist, uh, which I think emerged over the next couple of decades from what was accomplished by uh, my generation of uh, yellow
1: berets. So, what is the importance of the physician scientist? What What does the physician add to the scientist half of the combination? I I th- I
2: think that it has to do with the ability of physicians uh, to perceive uh both in advance and and after discoveries are made just how basic science discoveries can lead to clinical advances uh there's sort of this holistic understanding of human biology that I think you only get from a medical education uh rather than from a highly specialized uh, PhD in uh, genetics or you know some uh, some other such field
1: so can can you can you pinpoint any way in which that happens for you when you were thinking about receptors? Was there something that you knew as a physician that you wouldn't have known as simply a researcher that helped you make the connection?
2: I, I think that my interest in uh, receptors, the deep interest that I had had to do with the fact that I appreciated that if you could find these, mythical receptors that I believed. And if you could find them and learn to manipulate them, that here's the thing. It wasn't anything specific. It was the, the faith, for lack of a better word, that this would have to have very broad implications. If you could find the receptors and learn to manipulate them and, and maybe design drugs to fit into them, Golly, you could regulate virtually any physiological process in our body, and that's gotta be good. And it was, that was it. That was as far as into the future as I could see.
1: So maybe it gave you, because of your experience touching patients, yeah. you had an impetus, you had a drive that kept you going beyond beyond the point you might have stopped when everybody was telling you they don't even exist. Exactly right. And, and then
2: after I set up my own laboratory at Duke in 1973, uh, the same was true. It was a long road from the very beginning of my research uh, to when it began being, you know, applied. Not, it's not that I'm looking for a cure, but uh, my whole sense of of what's, what's a, a useful problem to go after, uh, or an interesting problem, I should say, is always colored by, hmm, you know, if you could do that, I'll bet you it might have some application.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you've got two brains working at the same time. One is just plain, purely curious. Right. How does nature work? Exactly. And the other lights up and says, wait, if nature works that way, look what we can do with it. Exactly
2: right. Right on the money, right yeah. on the money.
1: When we come back from our break, Bob Lefkowitz talks about what he feels is his most important scientific legacy. And it's not just that his discoveries have saved millions of lives. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about Patreon.com slash Clear and Vivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com clearandvivid. This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Bob Lefkowitz and the extraordinary impact that those soldiers of science would have on medical research.
2: In the uh, NIH uh, Associates Program, uh, between 1964 and 1972, that's eight years, uh, and there weren't that many of us, I don't know, maybe several dozen a year in that program, Uh, nine of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, that's crazy. And, And as I say, except seven of nine of us had no research experience before we went there. In my class, if you will, 1968 to 70, so we had graduated, all of us graduated medical school in 66, and then we went to the NIH from 68 to 70. In that class, four of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. And one who didn't was Tony Fauci. He was another colleague. We all knew each other then. Uh, and, you know, when I look back on it, who would have ever
1: dreamed of such a thing? So the question is, what?
2: how did that happen?
1: But it sounds like you had an advantage that we don't have now, gladly, I'm sure, on the part of many people, which is that you had the draft. Right. So people were incentivized to go to take their clinical experience and apply it to basic and, and
2: research. That, that brings up something which has been on my mind for a long time. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't have the same compelling nature, but I believe that there should be a draft uh, in the sense for t- a couple of years of service that you had to do, national service, uh, which might include this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. you could get deferred, for example, as we were, through college, and you get more deferments to get through medical school and more deferments to get through uh, maybe a few years of residency. But then, at some point, you would have to serve for two years.
1: And the service that you all performed is amazing. The When you think of just the Nobel Prize winners alone, who, the nine who came with right. the program, there were... The others who didn't actually win the Nobel Prize went on to head departments. and.
2: Exactly. I mean, the Nobel Prizes is the tippy, tippy, tip of the iceberg. I mean, I'm telling you, in my generation, virtually anybody who was a professor of medicine or a dean or a head of a medical center,
1: everybody came
2: out of that program.
1: And what did they produce in terms of? The ability to improve people's health and save lives. I mean, when you think about one third of medications involved in receptors that you worked on, that you were so so let me valuable give you, to, let me give millions you, of people.
2: Yeah, well, let me let me give you a stunning example. Let's take the four of us from the class of '68 to '70. Okay. Yeah. So we talked about my own research and a third of all drugs. Harold Varmus discovered the first oncogene, the first cancer-causing gene, together with a, a, a research partner, Michael Bishop, who was also a Yellow Beret, also a Nobel Prize winner, but two or three years before Varmus. Okay, so a third of all medicines for my receptors. Varmus, uh, oncogenes, cancer-causing genes, has led to the ultimately the entire revolution of drugs that we have now, you know, that treat uh, the mutant genes that he and then others discovered, and then Brown and Goldstein statins, cancer, heart disease, and then of course the G, the receptor drugs it was like fat, you know everything, heart disease and diabetes and hypertension, and just everything. So just from that one class, mm. what an amazing yield! Uh, that's millions of lives. Millions to, of lives so far. Yeah, so far exactly, and that, that's just from that one class. Uh doesn't mention all the other stuff and the immunology, and uh, it's just AIDS and,
1: yeah. I- it's, it's interesting and sad that this couldn't be understood at the time, that people who use the term yellow beret as a term of opprobrium, as a way to call you cowards that you weren't serving your country, you were right. saving the country. That's
2: that's a very wonderful perspective, and in in the hindsight of whatever forty years, fifty years, uh, very true.
1: Did you all at the time have an awareness of what your work would lead to? Did you did you have a a glow about you that i'm doing important stuff here
2: absolutely not
1: Not. (laughs) (laughs) you you kept shaking your head before you said that right i thought it was going to be a big yes (laughs) no because i think
2: back on it and i i think of of just how far we were in our consciousness from any appreciation you know we were there we were learning something and uh once it started working it was a lot of fun uh and i think you know even by the time i finished there I was thinking, well, you know, this is probably going to affect my career. I, I may be heading in a different direction. I wasn't sure yet. I may be heading in a different direction. But the idea of what would come from it, not even close.
1: I mean, there was no awareness. What, what propelled you aside from this awareness as a physician that you might be onto something that could be valuable? There's that other thing that researchers tell me all the time, the notion that you are now in possession of knowledge, of a view of nature that nobody in the world has ever seen before.
2: So true. So very true. And it doesn't have to be a Nobel Prize winning discovery. I can remember when I was at the bench myself, yeah. which I haven't been for many years. And I w- at the end of the day, I would stand at the scintillation counter. That's the machine that counts radioactivity in different vials. So I'm actually seeing in real time now the result of the experiment that I've done today before I go home. Uh, Not the final result, but the preliminary result. And I would see this happened, it went up, it went down. And I would know in that moment, there's no other human being who knows because nobody exactly that stupid little tiny increment of information. And it's,
1: yeah, that thought would actually occur to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. Yeah,
2: I mean, and I think what you said is true. I think for scientists, because that's a, every experiment's a little discovery. Uh, yeah. And I always try to tell my students and my fellows, you have to – never could it be true that, you know, they talk about it's the journey, not the, the destination – Yes, if you're waiting you know, until you solve the big problem, it's going to be a long wait. But if, if every little experiment, even when an experiment fails, it can teach you a lot. But every one is a little discovery. And that's what keeps you afloat from day to day, even when you don't seem to be making progress. Just every day you go home with eh, a little, little
1: extra nugget
2: of information.
1: The importance of that little nugget of information became vividly apparent to Bob when he left the NIH program to pursue the career he thought he was preparing for as a working physician. In 1970, he went to Massachusetts General Hospital to do a senior residency in cardiology.
2: The first six months were all intense clinical work, and I liked it. I liked it. I didn't love it the way I used to. But that's when I realized something was missing.
1: And what was that?
2: Data. I had no data. I had gotten used to having data every day, good, bad, or different. Uh, In other words, the scientific process was missing. Uh, I would go home at night not having a new experiment to think about, not having a problem that I was working on, and I really missed it. And that was the first inkling that, wait a minute, I'm going to need to get back into a laboratory to at least have part of my career uh, and part of my thinking engaged with a scientific problem. You
1: really were transformed by D- that.
2: Exactly, theory. and I didn't realize it. Even at the time I left the NIH, uh, I remember my mentor saying, you can't leave, Bob. Your problem, you're making real headway. I said, no, I mean, I realized this was fun at the end, and it worked, and we published a few papers. I said, but I'm going off to pursue what I always dreamed of. But then when I got back into it, I realized something is missing. And I realized what it was. Uh, so that was a transformation. That transformation then continued over the next few years. Uh, it would probably take me another five to eight years to become fully, let's say five years, to fully embrace that. But what I realized is that I had another calling. I remember talking to, not that long ago to a student group. I had to give him a talk about my career, and I titled it A Tale of Two Callings because I had the calling to clinical medicine, but then I had the calling to research. I mean, and by calling, I mean something you don't think about it. It's not a rational thing. You just know I'm meant to do this, Mm -hmm. whatever this is. And, yeah, so I had the second calling, which became apparent not because I thought it through, but just by what I became. So when I started at Duke in 1973 uh, as a young faculty member, I would say the first year I probably spent 60 percent of my time. These are rough figures; it could have been 50 percent in the la- setting up my lab. The other 50 or 40 percent, seeing patients, clinics, rounding, etc. By the second year, it was probably it was definitely 60 40. By the third year, it was probably 75 25. By the fourth and fifth year, it was like 90 10. Not because I was thinking that. It just,
1: that happened because I, I became obsessed with the laboratory. Something something became awakened in you. Yeah,
2: exactly. Something became that. awakened and it would not sleep. Uh, and I became obsessed with the, the problems I was working on.
1: I love uh, the sheet of suggestions or rules that you laid out for your students. That, and you have one that, I think it's number 10. Yeah. That's, funny and deadly serious, where you say you got to be enthusiastic about your work you have to really care a lot about it you have to be convinced it's worthwhile and i have to be convinced it's worthwhile. right exactly
2: <laughs> you know for me that doing the science with my fellows is a joy uh and i see it very much as a combined process we're both in it together it's a, and it's a real bonding thing when you finally are successful that uh, to have suffered through it together and come out the other side, uh, but part of the key to that, I always tell them, as you said, is you need to be excited about it, but I need to be excited yeah. about it so uh,
1: and then you're passing on your work, your experience, your intuitions to another generation, and pushing that boat off from shore right exactly, and where do you think it's going to go what do you have any idea what? your legacy through your students will be? Do you you ever think about that? I do think about the fact
2: that, frankly, as much as anything we've done in the laboratory together, the legacy is the people. Uh, I consider myself uh, fortunate and uh, thrilled that in my field, as it's constituted today, most of the people are in my lineage that is to take all the stars their first generation people who trained with me and then the people who trained with them and then and it's come to be a bit of a thing at big international meetings uh where you know i'll often give the opening talk or the closing talk somebody at some point will put up a lineage slide of the people who are on the program oh great And, and Starting with me and then all the different things. And, and you know, it's, it's impressive. You know, 30, 40 percent of everybody presenting will have descended on the tree. And, of course,
1: there are so many generations now because the generation time is short, you know. So when you read the work of people who have descended from you generations yeah. beyond, are you surprised, do you think, Oh, look where it went.
2: Yes, very often. I say, wow, what an interesting development that is. And you see them putting their own creativity on the thing. and But yet you can also see the intellectual line. You can sort of say, oh, yeah, I can see how we got there. But then, ooh, for the really good ones, you say, ooh, there's a leap there. Oh, I don't great. know if I would have made that, but, yeah. uh, but it, that, that's, I love that. And people are always coming up to me at meetings and saying, well, you don't know me, but I'm eighth generation left go you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I don't know them because, you know, they trained with a guy, who, you know. But, and that's always a big kick for me. Yeah, that's
1: great. What was it like for you when you found out you won the Nobel Prize? And what, what time of day was it? Right. So 5 a.m. I get a call. Or you were asleep. I was asleep. You weren't up all night waiting to hear. No, not at all. <laughs> you
2: know, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I, I have a funny, uh, after dinner talk that I give called, uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. And, uh, it, it talks about the fact that for a good, I was 69 when I won the prize. And that's not unusual. Uh, I know a lot of people who are much older than that. Uh, you know Eric Kandel. Yeah. He was in his 70s when he won. Uh, but uh, so for a good 20 years before I won the prize, people were saying to me, Bob, you're going to win the Nobel Prize. Or why haven't you won the Nobel Prize? When are you going to win the Nobel Prize already?
1: Was there then a rumor that year that you might or did it come totally out of the blue?
2: I think totally out of the blue. Uh, so, but people, people were convinced based on the body of work I had published that mm. it was Nobel worthy and that I would win the prize. But then years went by and it didn't happen. And I went through a, a phase of saying, hmm, you know, at first I didn't think the work was worthy of that. But as the years passed and it became clear, even I said, you know, th- this is pretty good. <laughs> uh, but, what, because you know, you, you never know what's going to come. But I, when I saw all these drugs and everything, I said, still it didn't happen. Uh, and so after a certain number of years, I said, well, this is not happening. It's not the end of the world. I can't say I forgot about it, but, you know, I didn't wait by the phone, put it that way, and then there was an even stranger thing, which is that the Nobel Prizes, as you may know, uh, are awarded in a set fashion each day of the week one prize is announced. Monday is medicine. Tuesday is physics. Wednesday is chemistry. Thursday is economics, etc. At Thursday's Literature. Uh, well, on the particular week that I won the prize, Monday had come and gone. Uh, as I say, not but I was waiting by the phone, but, you know, I, I didn't win. But then I got the call on Wednesday It decided to give it to us in chemistry, for God knows why. Uh, but it turns out that that often happens, that there's so much overlap between medicine and chemistry, especially biochemistry. In my work, if you had to put one specific area, yeah, it's biochemistry. I mean, we We figured out what the receptors were. It was biochemical work. So the thing that amazed me, people often say to me, were you surprised when you got the call? The standard answer I give, because it's true, is yes and no. No, I wasn't surprised because for 20 years, people have been telling me you're going (laughs) to win the prize. So how could I be surprised? Yes, in the sense that there was no leak, no rumors, no nothing. I mean, I've heard leaks in certain years where... You know, you say, oh, have you heard they say so-and-so is going to win? And they do. Uh, but there was nothing. I mean, had abs- much less in chemistry. So it was a total shock. So you pick up the phone, and what do you hear? Well, what happens is my wife answered the phone. I sleep with earplugs uh, in a cocoon. I've got a mask on my face and earplugs. I'm gone. Uh, so she answered the phone, which is on a headboard behind us. And she gave me an elbow. Uh, she said, there's a woman calling from Stockholm. Uh, and so immediately, you know, you might it's Nobel week. Granted, it's not the right day, but why the hell are they calling? Uh, one of the first things that occurred to me is I have heard a couple of stories where they're trying to reach a scientist who won the Nobel Prize and they can't. So they're calling another scientist in the area to see
1: if he knows where they are. Like what meeting he's at, so uh, Uh, you were you were four four one one to her. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's what I was concerned that they're going to say, "Dr. Lefkowitz is Nobel calling." Do you know where Dr. So and So might be? You know where
1: the really smart guy is. Exactly right.
2: (laughs) But no, she said she immediately gave it away. She said, "This is So and So from the Nobel uh, from from the Royal Swedish Academy. I'm going to put on Dr. So and So, the head of the Nobel Prize Committee in Chemistry, uh, who has some good news for you." So at that point, I knew. And I can tell you, and then he told me, I can tell you that I did not have a Eureka or, or an amazing experience. It was more two things, a quiet sense of satisfaction and relief. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey, People would stop telling Yeah, the monkey is off my back. <laughs>
1: As I said at the beginning of this episode, what you've been listening to is an edited version of a much longer conversation I had with Bob Lefkowitz as part of a podcast called Soldiers of Science. So we can't end with our usual seven questions, but you can listen not just to Bob's story, but also to those of some of his fellow soldiers of science, including Anthony Fauci's. You'll find it at audible.com. Has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Robert Lefkowitz was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry along with his colleague Brian Kobilka, in 2012. Bob holds several professorships at Duke University School of Medicine, and over the past decade, he's discovered novel properties of the receptors he discovered over 30 years ago. That work has led to the possibility of an entirely new class of drugs. The talk he mentioned in our conversation called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm is now a delightful book. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Cheme. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with veteran science journalist, Dennis Overby. For 20 years, Dennis has been bringing us in the pages of the New York Times, stories of the wonders and mysteries of the universe. I don't know if I learned much physics at MIT, but I learned how to kind of look like a physicist and dress like a physicist and hang out with the physicists so much that I was just part of the furniture and and, and they would forget I was there. And then you can start doing good reporting. and, and you know, catching people being themselves, which is an important part of science, I think. Dennis Overby, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Daphne Shahomi. She's a memory researcher who sees memories as much more than static recollections of the past.
0: I think one of the exciting things to realize in in research and in life is, is exactly how pervasive memory is, that it's really not just about creating a long-lasting record of an event from the past, uh, but that is very much a sort of a behavioral whisper, a source of information that helps us deal with the present, helps us understand what we're seeing and doing, and helps us make plans for the future as well.
1: Daphne Shahomi and our creative memories, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up with Friends.